<clears throat> the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Before we read the passage, I do want to let you know up front that this section of Scripture uh, has many, many difficulties associated with it, all the way from the translation in our Old Testament from the Hebrew and the Septuagint, all the way down to the flow of the passage here in Ephesians chapter 4. A lot of good men have differing understandings of this. Uh, You might walk away this morning and you might say, well, I've heard a differing understanding of this. And my initial reaction would be, well, amen. Uh, But do give consideration to what I'm preaching here this morning. Not only that, there's a lot of differing perspectives on verses 9 and 10 about what does it mean that Christ descended to the lower parts of the earth. Personally, I don't have much difficulty with that, but there is a lot of nuances associated with that. So just to let you know that right up front. And we're going to have to do a little spade work here for us to really come to what I believe is the point and the understanding that Paul's trying to make here in these passages. So let's read, we'll begin again in verse 1 of chapter 4, although our text is verses 7 through 11, and we're just going to basically conclude with verse 11 and take that verse up independently, Lord willing, next week. Ephesians 4 verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with, with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So at this point in our study here in the book of Ephesians, we should be coming to greater and greater understanding and full and more full persuasion concerning God's eternal purpose. To really to this place that in a sense we could never ever again say that we don't know what God's will consists of. You might know, not know the details of God's will for you personally in certain areas of life, 
But we know this overarching will that is true for how many of God's people? All of them. And every church that is out there. This is God's eternal purpose and will. And we need to come to an understanding, knowing that will and His eternal purpose, that we are fully persuaded that when God fulfills that will, and He did it in His Son, and it's being brought to pass in what area? The church of Jesus Christ. The body of Christ Himself. Fully brought to pass when Christ comes again. Amen. Lord, come quickly. And being brought to pass in local geographical churches all over this world, regardless of the denominational label, if it is His church, that purpose is being brought to pass in that congregation. And having seen those things, we ourselves as individual believers and even as a congregation should be strengthened in our inner man because we know this knowledge of God the Father. And we know that He is bringing this to pass in our congregation. And that really is the power of God that we are to be looking for. Do we see that in our congregation? God's power. And I as a pastor who really look for these types of things, and I know you do too, yes, that power is present. Could it be more powerful? The answer to that, of course, is what? Yes. And may God enlarge the hearts of this body so that the power that was seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ may be seen in greater and greater measures here in this congregation. Are we seeing that power, this strengthening with might in our own personal walk? It's not just seeing it within a congregation, although that is the primary focus here in this passage. But if it is in the body, then it should be being seen in each individual member of that body, right? If my body's alive and it's been empowered to live, then you should be seeing that when I move my fingers, right? You should be seeing that if I wave my arm. This is the power of Christ working in a New Testament congregation. And a church recognizing that power and recognizing the results of that power that were brought about in Christ Jesus should give all their powers to maintain this unity that Christ has given to us. And it all begins with our aim. Our aim is to walk in all forms of humility and all forms of gentleness. This is what we have to guard. Pride raises its head, doesn't it? Like a viper, you say, that's a cute little snake. But in that snake and in the mouth of that snake, there are fangs that are folded up on the roof of the mouth of that snake. 
And folks, we're not eliminated with that, are we? We ourselves have that sinful nature in the body of this flesh. And we have to guard that those things don't show itself, whether it be in our speech or our service, our interactions with one another. And that is a hard thing to do, and it's going to take how much of our effort? All of our effort to see that in our congregation. We're also to give all diligence and effort to maintain our doctrinal foundation. That doctrinal foundation is to underpin every New Testament church. If it is a New Testament church, regardless of its label, that New Testament church should have a common underpinning. It's not true today, but it used to be in some of the earliest years of our nation, you could go pretty much to any denominational Christian church and you would find this doctrinal underpinning. We might vary in modes of baptism, we might vary a little bit in systematic theology, we might vary a little bit in application, we might vary in our church polity or our government, but the underpinning was all there. Not so today. And we need to be aggressive regardless of what the culture and other churches are doing around us. It takes every effort for us to maintain that foundation. And folks, even though I, as a pastor, I have a responsibility to maintain that, to guard that, it really is a whole body effort. It's not just my effort, and then everyone here gets to have whatever varying foundational underpinnings you want. It takes the whole effort of the whole body on behalf of this congregation to do that. That doctrinal foundation is not to be contextualized, which is a buzzword today, It's not to be affected by the culture. It's not to be marginalized. It's not to be getting rid of. All of these things ought to be there. And folks, really, if a church does not have this doctrinal underpinning, and if a church does not have at its aim to walk in all humility and gentleness, what can you say about that church? Well, at best, you could say that they are not walking in a worthy manner, right? They're not pleasing to Christ. But at worst, you could say that they are not properly a New Testament congregation. So really, even at best, isn't the best, right? To not walk worthy of the calling with which we are called, that is a travesty. But even worse would be not even to be, regardless of the name of our church body, to not properly be a New Testament congregation. In Baptist terms, it would, it would be worded like this. A church that is not properly in order. That would be the Baptist terms concerning that. Now that brings us to verses 7 through 11. 
Not only are we not to have our foreordained unity and conformity in our aim, and our foreordained unity and conformity in our doctrine, we are also to have a foreordained coordinated unity. Okay, now I want you to think about that, that phrase, a coordinated unity. Do we have a unity? Okay. However, we're to have a unity and a conformity in certain areas, but we all have differing gifts being manifested and differing gifts functioning within a New Testament body. And those New Testament gifts and those New Testament functions need to be coordinated. What do I mean by coordinated? Well, they all need to be working together in harmony. Everybody see that? Differing gifts, differing function, all these types of things, but we're not to allow our differing gifts and our differing functions to cause disunity. They're here on purpose by the Lord so that we can walk in a coordinated fashion. And I've used this illustration. If my arm decides not to be submissive to the head and do its own thing, we say, boy, that arm is not working properly. It's not in coordination with the rest of the what? Rest of the body. If you say to your arm, reach forth, and your arm goes back, your arm is not functioning in a coordinated manner according to the unity of the body. This is a coordinated unity. It is a coordinated diversity within the body according to our gifts and giftedness. And of course you'll see that here. If you look here at verse 7, when it says, but each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ gifts. Now I want us to take our Bibles and I want us to look at the passages that do describe the gifts. Now my purpose with this is only to bring out certain truths in these passages, not to exegete the passages, okay? So like I'm not going to take time and say whether this gift is still valid today or this gift isn't. I just want us to see certain things because In Ephesians, I think there is a nuance that for all practical purposes has been lost upon the New Testament church today. What are these scriptures? Well, there's basically three that delineate certain gifts and then one that gives the categories of the gifts. There's a section in Romans, there's a section in 1 Corinthians, there's a section here in Ephesians, and there's a section in 1 Peter. So let's begin by looking at 1 Peter chapter 4. Everybody turn there to this passage. I'm going to be building an argumentation for the way that I think the passage is laid out for us. In 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 10 down through 11, Peter writes, As each one has received a a gift, employ it in serving one another 
as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things, whether speaking or serving, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen to that. And here's what I want us to see here in this passage. In verse 10, it says, Every member or every believer in a local New Testament assembly has received a gift. No exceptions. Everybody see that? Every one of us has received a gift. And that gift, now this is very important, is to be used how? Serving one another. Everybody see the, that one another passage? So in a local New Testament assembly, when we're talking about a coordinated unity, we understand no exceptions. Every genuine believer has received a gift, and they are to use that gift for serving one another in that local New Testament body. If we do that, look at verse 10 again, we are good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Everybody see that? Now folks, if you can be a good steward of the manifold grace of God, it's understood you could be a bad steward. Everybody see that? What would be a bad steward? Not utilizing the gift that God has given to you for one another but to either use it selfishly or not use it in a local New Testament assembly, but want to use it outside of a New Testament assembly. Everybody see that? We want to be good stewards of God's grace. And what Peter gives to us is two general categories of gifts. Those categories involve verse 11, speaking grace and service grace. And folks, when it comes to speaking grace or speaking gifts, if you have that gift, you are to employ it in serving one another. How? Verse 11. By speaking what to one another? The utterances of God. Does everybody see that? It's not just the pastor. Now, if you're a pastor and you're a pastor teacher, of course, you must have some form and some measure of a speaking gift, right? And the congregation would say, well, we demand that the man who stands behind the pulpit, that he gives to us the word of God. But the Bible says all of us are to be given each other the utterances of God. Which means that whatever we are saying to one another should be reflective of what the text is saying. Everybody see that? Doesn't mean that you've got to go around quoting Scripture. You know, someone says, what's for dinner? 
John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Okay. You would be uttering the utterances of God, wouldn't you? But it wouldn't make any sense in that context. Or we could word it this way from the book of Ephesians. We are to speak truth. It just doesn't mean be honest. To speak truth one to another. Our speech and our communication is to be reflective of what God has said about all things. Then there is this service gift. This service to one another is to be according to the strength that God supplies. And inherent within that statement is is that serving one another can be exhausting. Right? If I need strength, and I'm going to give glory to God for Him giving me that strength, then of necessity, I probably am going to feel my what? My weakness. Everybody see that? You ever said in a situation, I just, I just don't know how I can serve that person in this way. And then you pray and ask the Lord, Lord, would you give me the strength to do that? That glorifies God. That's being a good steward of the grace of God. And when a church is doing this, we end up glorifying God the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, everybody see that? How many categories of gifts? Two. Two. Speaking gift, serving gift. Or we could put it this way. Speaking grace or serving grace. Then if we turn to the book of Romans chapter 12. So now we're looking at the very delineation of certain gifts. And as we look at these gifts that are delineated, I just want to say that I don't think that these listings are exhaustive. But I do think that each one of these lists that Paul gives is distinctive to meet the needs of the readers that Paul is addressing. So this isn't a complete list, but it is a particular list for the needs of that congregation that Paul is writing. So Romans chapter 12, we'll begin in verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same what? Function. So we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So is mercy a gift? Can that differ among ourselves, the measure of that gift? It can. Leading, giving, exhortation, teaching, serving, prophesying, all of these are gifts that differ among us. 
But what I want to see is this. In verse 3, Paul says, through the grace given to who? To Paul. And then he says, verse 4, all the members do not have the same function. So what we learn here is this. There are functions of gifts. What was Paul's function? He was an apostle. Everybody agree with that? That was his function to the body of Christ. We also have gifts that differ. In other words, gifts that are exercised through the members of the body and manifested. Showing mercy is an exercise of a what? Of a gift, isn't it? But it's not a function. Like you wouldn't say, here we have an office. We have an office of an apostle. Now we have an office of mercy. <laughs> okay, And we're going to put a person in that office because <clears throat> they're the merciful one. Now all of us are to exhibit mercy. All of us are to be givers. All of us are to be teaching to some fashion, shape, and form, but there are certain people who have greater exercise of those gifts. It kind of characterizes them. And they are to be manifesting that gift. Just like Paul was manifesting his function within that body as an apostle. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. But to each one is given what? The manifestation of the Spirit. Everybody see that word. Each one of us is given the manifest, manifestation of the Spirit for the common good or for the body of Christ. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of uh, tongues or languages, and to another the interpretation of tongues or of languages. Those gifts are manifestation gifts. Those are gifts that differ among each one of us. And so he says, well, each member in the body have been given the manifestation of the Spirit for the benefit of the body. So just just taking an illustration. If someone shows mercy, if they manifest the mercy of Christ to one another. We recognize that as being of the Spirit of God. Everybody see that? We don't say, well, that person was born with that particular talent. No, lost people are given talents. We're given the manifestation of the Spirit. These are spiritual gifts. 
Or if someone teaches you something. Here you are, you're talking to one another, and they say, well, look, have you ever considered this passage? And they, they, just, they just expound the passage to you. The light bulb goes off, and you say, I see that. That's a manifestation of the, of the Spirit of God. And we should recognize that. If we would recognize that, we would quit all this foolishness looking for some kind of extraordinary, miraculous thing. He said, well, that's not very exciting if someone in the church shows mercy and goes to the hospital and shows care and compassion and has prayer for one another. We say, well, that's what everybody ought to be doing. Well, everybody's not born again. They don't all do that, right? But this person who has that gift, that's what they think about first. And when that happens, we say... That is the manifestation of the Spirit of God. And folks, you know what that does in our souls? It gives us gratitude. It lets us see that the power of God is working here in a congregation. If someone gets up and plays the piano, now folks, can lost people play the piano? Of course. But what's different is, is if if we, if a believer gets up and plays the piano, And in playing the piano, the Lord ministers to your spirit. That's a spiritual gift. That is the manifestation of the spirit. And so in everything in our congregation, we are to be manifesting the third member of the Godhead to one another, and we need to recognize that in other people's lives. Those gifts are for the benefit of the body. It says it in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 12, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, or for the common good of that local New Testament church. And folks, the gifts that are listed here, not all of them are in existence today, depending on how you define them, But all of those gifts of the Spirit had been manifested in what church? The church at Corinth. And Paul's using that to teach them about spiritual things. So having said all that, now let's go back to the book of Ephesians. What do we know in this passage? Well, in verse 7, we know that Paul is teaching us that each believer, each one of us, does Paul include himself? He does. Each one of us, grace was given. Note the past tense. To each one of us, grace has been given to each believer in a local New Testament assembly. And the grace that is given, whatever that is, the grace that is given involves, look at verse 7, the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, Christ is the head of the church and he measures out to each congregation This gift, this gift of grace, a grace that has been given to each one of us. Everybody everybody see that thus far? Because I'm building here. 
If you're lost at this point, I don't know that you're going to make it here to the end. Okay? Let's look at something else here that's going to help us tie in these passages. In verse 7, you have this phrase, was given. Everybody see that? Was given. At the end of verse 7, you have this word, gift. In verse 8, you have, and he gave what to men? Gifts. Everybody see that? And then you have in verse 11, what's the verb there in verse 11? Gave. Everybody, I know this is simple, but you've got to tie in that. He's all talking about the same thing here. From the minute he starts, each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ, and he gave gifts to men, and he gave some. All of those are tied together. And these things happened at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So every believer in a local New Testament church, everyone, has been given according to the measure of His gift. We've all been given something. Now that brings us to verse 8. Verse 8 is a quotation from Psalm 68 and verse 18. And again, I'm not going to go into, there's difficulties with the translation, both in the Old Testament, not so much in the New, but in the Old Testament, different ways to look at this. No need to go into all those nuances. But what I do want to mention is this. In Psalm 68, the subject is God coming down to war on Israel's behalf. God came down and His enemies were scattered. So God is coming down to war on Israel's behalf. So therefore, because God did that, King David ascended up to Jerusalem in victory, leading captives of the war and the spoils of victory. Okay, everybody see that? God came down and fought on behalf of Israel. Who was the king of Israel? David. So David could go to war God warred on Israel's behalf for his namesake, and David ended up ascending. Jerusalem's on top of a mountain. And if David had to go to war, he had to go down the mountain, right? He had to war, and then he had to come back up to mountain. And when he came back up to mountain, there would be prisoners of war, and there would be the spoils of the victory. That is the context of Psalm 68. Now what Paul is doing, I think, is using the psalm to point out 
something. What he's pointing out is what Christ did. It says, verse 9, now this expression, he's going to expound one particular expression in that verse. He ascended. That's what he's going to expound. Did Christ descend? Yeah. He did descend. He was throne of glory on the highest. He took on human flesh. He descended. And I believe that when it says He descended, well, what does that mean? Except that He descended into the lower parts of the earth. I'm not sure that means the grave, but it definitely means His incarnation. Then He says, now here's the point, verse 10. Well, if Christ descended, it's the same Christ who also ascended far above all the heavens so that He might fill all things. So if Christ came down from glory to earth, took on the incarnation, did He return? He did return, and so since He had descended into the lower parts of the earth in the incarnation, He also ascended back into the clouds of glory at the right hand of God the Father. Well, what did He do? Folks, what was He doing at the cross? He was going to war. He would say to the Pharisees when they accused Him of casting out demons by Beelzebub, He would say, among other things, how can you spoil the strong man unless you bind him first. In other words, there is a strong man, and that strong man has something, and Christ desires it. What does he have to do to get the spoil? He has to bind the strong man. The cross was war. Light versus darkness. Satan has within his powers and the power of death itself mankind. His power is intensified with all mankind to the degree they sin. The power of death is sin. The more a person sins, the stronger the grip, the stronger the power of condemnation in their lives. Christ came to redeem people from that power. So what did He have to do? He had to bind the strong man, or if I'm talking in Colossian terms, He had to disarm him of his power. Everybody see that? So what did He do? He nailed on that cross our trespasses and our iniquities. 
and he became, all those sins and iniquities were imputed, they were counted on him. And he suffered our penalty, and he fulfilled the law all at that same moment. And God poured on him his wrath for our sin, not for his. And he cried out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He was abandoned for our sake. And then that blessed moment, he's not calling him, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He bows his head and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he committed the body of Jesus Christ to the penalty of death. But death could not hold Him. Everybody see that? Why could death not hold Him? It has no power against a sinless man. Everybody see that? Because the power of death is sin. There was warfare going on at that cross. And folks, what He did, look at verse 8 again. When Christ ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives. Who are the war prisoners? Who are those prisoners of war? It's us. It's the redeemed. Of the Lord. He bought us out of the slavery of sin. He redeemed us. And He led us captive. When He ascended on high, He took us with Him. Isn't that what Ephesians says? You are seated in the heavenlies in who? In Christ. And you say, well, that's fine, Pastor, but what does all that have to do with gifts? <laughs> Look at verse 8. <clears throat> he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to who? Now the question are, is, what is the gifts? And folks, I've already told you what the gifts are. <laughs> Did you pick it up? Folks, what happened when Christ arose is He led captivity, the spoils of war, people, out of bondage, into His glorious light. And, now hear this, and He took certain men of the redeemed and He gave them back to the redeemed as a gift. You're going to have to think about that. You say, how could you say that? Well, look at verse 11. 
He gave some what? What's the first one? Alright. Can you name an apostle? Paul. Was he a man? Was he redeemed? He was given back to the redeemed as a gift functioning as a apostle. Everybody see that? Christ took captive people in order to give certain people out of the captivity that He took captive back to the redeemed for their good. Who are these gifts of men? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor what? Pastor teachers. Everybody see where I'm going with this? Do I have anywhere in my Bible where it speaks of God ever doing that? And I'm glad you asked. I want you to turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 18. Book of Numbers, chapter 18. I'm not going to turn to it, but it also speaks of it in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 20 and 21. But this is very, very clear. <clears throat> Numbers chapter 18. Look at verse 6. <clears throat> Behold, <clears throat> I myself, that is God Himself, have taken your fellow Levites. Now, were the Levites the children of the children of Israel? Yes. yes. I have taken, I have taken your fellow Levites from among who? All the sons of Israel. You had 12 tribes, right? You had multitudes of people. God Himself, out of all those who came out of Egypt, He selects the Levites for a particular function. Verse 6, Behold, I myself have taken your fellow Levites from among the sons of Israel. They are a what? Gift for who? To you. Dedicated to the Lord to perform the service for the tent of meeting. Everybody see that passage? So do I have a physical illustration of what I believe God is telling us in the book of Ephesians? I do. Here's this whole nation coming out, all of them under the banner of being redeemed from the slavery of Egypt. We realize not all of them were saved. But there's a profession of that. And God looks down upon these multitudes of people and multitudes of tribes and He says, Here's the redeemed that I've taken out of the land of Egypt, and I'm going to select one tribe. I'm selecting one tribe. They're redeemed. They came out of Egypt, 
and I am selecting them to do a particular function on behalf of the whole people, and I've given that function to the people as a gift to serve. Everybody see that? And Isaiah chapter 66 refers to the very same thing. So if we go back to Ephesians, then folks, here's the nuance. Paul's not saying to us that Christ gave certain men the gift of apostleship. He's not saying to us that God has given to certain men the gift of prophet or evangelist or pastor-teacher. They do have gifts. He's saying that they themselves are the gift. That Paul himself is the gift to the local body. That the prophet himself is a gift to the body of Christ. That the evangelist, whatever that is, we'll look at that next week, Lord willing, whatever that is, he himself is the gift. Philip was an evangelist, wasn't he? He himself was a gift. It's not that he had the gift of evangelism. It's that he himself is the gift that has been given. And the gift of pastor-teacher. What Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus and what he is saying to us this morning is, is that in local New Testament assemblies, Christ who is the head looks at that local assembly and He gives as a gift to that local assembly certain men functioning as a particular office. Paul functioned as an apostle. Philip functioned as an evangelist. Timothy, for all practical purposes, functioned as a pastor-teacher. Everybody see that? Timothy is the gift. Philip is the gift. Paul is the gift. And folks, this is exactly what Paul tells to the Corinthians. I'm going to read it to you. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 21, he says to that church, All things are yours. Whether... Paul, do you hear that? Paul's a gift, isn't he? Whether it's me as a gift, what's my gift? What's the grace that has been given to me? He's given to me to be an apostle. I'm the gift. I'm an apostle. Whether it be Paul or whether it be Apollos, was he a gift? Or whether it be Cephas or Peter, was he a gift? or whether it be any other man in that function, and he goes on and says, whether it's the world, or it's this life, or it's death, or things present, or things to come, all these things belong to you. They're gifts. You belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. Folks, a pastor-teacher... 
is Christ's own gift to a local New Testament assembly. An evangelist is Christ's own gift to a local New Testament assembly. Are there any other offices in the New Testament? Deacons. A deacon is a gift to the New Testament assembly. Everybody see that? It's the men themselves that are the gifts that Christ in the whole pool of the redeemed, He selected certain men and He gave them gifts that differ so that they can function in that office and then He gave the man to the body of Christ as a gift to God's people. And folks, that's why Paul says, to each of us. (laughs) Folks, were there men given to the church, the body of Christ, that were a blessing to Paul? Yes. And they labored on behalf of New Testament assemblies. And folks, these men, those men that are given in verse 11... These men that are they are the gift. They have been given to New Testament congregations for their edification, for their building up, for the growth of the church. Look at it again. Look at verse 13. Right in the middle of that verse, we're to attain to a mature man, verse 14, so that we no longer be children, so that verse 15, we may grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. That's the aim of these gifts of men given to the body of Christ so that we can walk worthy of the calling wherewith we are called. And folks, as I conclude... The gifts of these men are absolutely necessary in order for a church to mature and to avoid false teaching and to bring a body of people to be filled with all the fullness of God. Everybody see that? I've given this illustration before. <clears throat> I was up at a church. It's not in the United States. And they were without a pastor. I happened to be preaching there. And I was out to dinner with one of the leading families that were there. And on the way out, this man looked at me and said, you know what? Our church is doing the best it's ever had without a pastor. And in my soul, I just shook my head. Folks, if a congregation can get along without these men given as gifts to a local New Testament assembly, why give them? Why give them? Why should Christ take the time to redeem someone, to groom them, 
for them to spend years studying the Scripture, coming to the wisdom of Christ, being given to a congregation, if they're not necessary. And having, I was at that church for several services in which I preached, and I knew they needed a pastor. (laughs) They didn't know it. But I could see it. The church was very much divided. The question for us this morning is this. Can we, as a church, receive these gifts, these men, as a gift from Christ? Or do we just think that human beings make men like this and seminaries make men like this? And if we just put them through the little cookie-cutter machinery, then boom, we can have this. Christ has to do this. And He does do it. And thanks be to God He does it. And folks, it's easy for us to minimize the extent to which we see these men as a gift from Christ. But that's essential to preserve the unity of the body by the Spirit. Let's pray.